looking in Psalm 138 last week, I will, 137 by the rivers of Babylon, exiled from home in this psalm, we have three areas mentioned, two cities, Babylon, Jerusalem, and then the country of Eden. We notice that Jerusalem was called the city of the great king. At Jerusalem, our Lord was tried and beaten and cruelly crucified and rose from the grave. It was at Jerusalem that the church, the bride of Christ, was born. And from where the, there, the first great missionary works began to spread through all the world. Jerusalem will be one day where our Lord comes to rule and reign. And then we saw Babylon mentioned there. The Lord allowed this country to judge his people by taking them in exile. And here they are. They find themselves, and by that vast river there, their lives passing them by, their captors asking the Jews to sing, and they had no song within them. Then we see Edom mentioned here, forever an enemy of Israel. Jacob and Esau, the twin sons, and Israel and Edom are their descendants. The descendants of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, the descendants of Esau, Edom. All the time that Israel occupied Canaan, Edom was a horrible thorn in Israel's side. Always on guard against the world powers of Babylon and Assyria, but it was Edom that continually came against Israel with the, the guerrilla warfare. And so we see these three countries, these three areas uh, that came against Israel. The cities of Babylon and Jerusalem and then Edom. The psalm has two parts, and we looked at the first part last week, the sorrow of the captives. You hear it in their voices. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for they that carried us away captive required of us a song. How cruel it was, not only to bring these people captive, but to ask them to sing. That was their predicament. Snatched from their homeland, taken far away, their sins finally catching up with them. This was a judgment from the Lord. He warned them of their idolatry, and Israel continually went into idolatry and rebellion against the Lord. And so, here they are. Their hearts were broken. They had nothing to sing about, and so they pined for home. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. The Euphrates River was uh, one of the rivers there of Babylon. The huge Euphrates flowed through the middle of the city of Babylon. When the exiles were brought into that great city, it would have been one of the sites they saw. Not only the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the world's largest library there at Babylon, great architectural wonders, a vast city. And, uh, but they were not enchanted by those things the simplicity of home, the temple there on the Temple Mount, the things at home, that's where their heart was. They remembered as they sat in exile that Abraham, their father, came from this very area. And it's as if they've made full circle back to where it all began. The Bible tells us that the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. God's people had squandered the blessings that God so graciously had showered upon them. The privileges of being the chosen people of God, the very oracles of God. They had the ways of God made known to them and should have been a light to the cities and the nations around them. Like the prodigal son of the New Testament, they began to think longingly of home. Yea, we wept when we remembered 
uh, our home. We hanged our harps upon the willows we see there in verse 2. Weeping willows, a sign of, of mourning and of sorrow. They even look like they're weeping, don't they, with their long hanging branches. And here the exiles sat and wept. As the rivers flowed past them, it represented wasted opportunities. Their lives passing before them. They had no control over their destinies as far as they were concerned because now they were the captives of the Babylons. Symbolically, their harps hanging on the willows were their vocal cords, their, their very hearts and voices silenced. As we've mentioned, nothing to sing about. Sin silences singing. It seems as if they would never sing again. Their captives demanded, though, that they sing. Sing us a song. Sing us one of your happy songs. What a surprise it must have been to these Jews in captivity to be asked to sing. They imagined that slave labor, having to do the menial menial work as being captives, but required to sing? How cruel. How could they sing? What could they sing about? Sob, yes, cry, yes, lament, but sing. Notice how the writer describes them as they wasted us. It's interesting use of the word because it's the very word that described how they lived before they were taken captive. Have you considered what a sin it is to waste opportunities? To waste your life? To waste opportunities to speak for the Lord? To do for Him? To serve Him? All of us have been given certain opportunities, certain privileges. To whom much is given, much is required. Maybe the place where you work. Maybe your status. Maybe your connections. Remember that the Lord allowed Daniel and Joseph and others to be in their place. And God had appointed His people to be a blessing. And they had wasted these opportunities. When they could not sing a happy song, their captors asked them then to sing one of the songs of Zion. One of their songs of worship. If you can't sing us one of your folk songs, one of your happy songs, then sing us a church song, one of the songs of Zion. How different it was, we saw from Paul and Silas, who had every reason to cry and to weep and mourn when they were beaten by the Philippian jailer, put in jail, and at midnight he heard them sing. Don't you know how amazed the jailer was after beating Paul and Silas mercilessly, hearing them sing the songs of Zion. How different it was, these who uh, were asked to sing and could not sing. But notice what their answer was in verse 4. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? They should have been able to sing, shouldn't they? You know, it doesn't matter where we are. If we're right with the Lord, we can sing, sing His songs. But they weren't. And that's the reason why they're... Their worship was blocked while their hearts were silent. We're to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. And the, the psalmist closes with the injunction, Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. And so we ought to be, as God's people, there are many ways to give testimonies. And one clear way that we can give testimony is to sing. They could have sung the very first song in their hymn book. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. That ought to have come to mind, a tree planted by rivers of water. His leaves shall not wither. He shall bring forth fruit, the Bible says there, 
And it goes on to talk about the blessed man. They should have sung that song. That would have been a testimony, wouldn't it? Then we see in the second part of the psalm, the memory of the captives. Look there in verse 9. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high... uh, I'm sorry, I mean the wrong, the wrong psalm back in Psalm 137, verse, verse 5. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall be that he be, that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be, that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. What a strange verse. What, what does it mean? And How could he say that would be happy to do such a thing? Well, he recalls in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist does, how favored Jerusalem was. This should affect every goal of life, he says in verses 5 and 6. Never again would he forget Jerusalem and all that Jerusalem stood for. You see, Jerusalem to the Jew was more than just a geographical location. It represented God's kingdom on earth. It represented everything that Jehovah was about. All the privileges, the temple, the sacrifices. It should affect every pleasure of life, he says there in verse 6. If I do not remember the... Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. And he speaks of Jerusalem as being his chief joy. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, nothing should take its place. No matter what his chief joy was, his wife, his family, his children, his success in business, whatever it may be, nothing should take the place of the Lord's work, the Lord's kingdom. What a challenge then lies for us as we think about the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem... The Bible describes it for us in the Revelation. I, John, saw the holy city prepared for a bride as her husband coming down from heaven. The Bible says that God will make a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And the Bible tells us we should think about this prospect, the new Jerusalem, where our citizenship truly is. We're aliens and strangers here below. Really, we're in a strange land, aren't we? We're captive, as it is in this day and time, exiled from home, longing to be with our Lord. The new Jerusalem, God would have us to have our affections there. What does the scripture say? Set your affections on things above, where your treasure is, where your citizenship is, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. He would have that to be our chief joy. And the the interest of this world would have to to fall behind our uh, joy of of heaven and thinking of heaven. He would have us to keep that in our focus. And then the psalmist's thoughts take a a, a sudden turn. He thinks of Eden and Babylon. There's a contrast here. Fixing his mind and heart on things above. But after all, he was in Babylon, wasn't he? As an exile. And so those thoughts seem to remind him that God has a long account to settle with these two nations. Do you remember that God keeps records? Do you remember when the children of Israel first came into Canaan and the Ammonites came against them and God said, I will remember what they did and I will repay them? Years and years and years later, he did just that. And so the psalmist seems to think about Edom and Babylon's sins against God's people. Now, God will discipline his own. God knows how to deal with his children. 
But woe to them who come against God's people, both Israel and his church. Those thoughts reminded him of that account that God had to settle. Now, this is not the psalmist's personal vindictiveness against these nations. It is Jehovah who's been offended by their sins. And so these closing verses must be kept in in that uh, light and must be looked at in that light. There are terrible imprecations as you see these throughout the Psalms, where the psalmist asks God to bring judgment. Now, people frown upon that because it goes against the grain of most people's thoughts. But I will remind you that God is a God of judgment. Please don't ever forget that. Always a God of mercy. And his arms are extended, inviting the sinner to come. Come, let us reason together. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden. But God, in the end, will judge all sin. He will not overlook a thing. And so this judgment was fitting, he says, in verses 7 through 9. The psalmist thinks about Edom, the nagging next-door neighbor who continually had insurrection against Israel, always trying to to do something against them. The psalmist was thinking perhaps with some of Isaiah's prophecies of Babylon as the nation that would threaten Jerusalem in some more terrible way in the distance. Then he thinks of the attitude of Edom in verse 7. The children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, raise it, raise it. Now, you know the word raise means tear it down to the ground. That's what Edom would do if God had allowed them to. And many times tried to do just that. Raise it, even to the foundations thereof. Now, it seems as if the Edomites had encouraged the Assyrians when their armies surrounded Jerusalem. Though Edom was never quite powerful enough to overtake Jerusalem, they would aid and abet the enemy, the much more powerful Assyrians and the Babylonians, when they came against Israel. They might not have actively helped them, as they did later when the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem, but they gave them encouragement. They probably told them how their weaknesses, what they could do to go against Jerusalem and and encourage them to sack it and demolish it. In fact, they were agging them all. Raise it, raise it, tear it down. This unknown poet now calls on God to remember Edom's spite. Well, whether he calls on God or not, God does remember all things. He does not let a thing pass. And we notice that he's asking God to, to, to bring justice and judgment. God does not forget, and let me say this very clearly. It may not be politically correct to say it in this day and time. It seems that our nation and other nations may have forgotten this, but God does not forget hatred toward his people, the Jews. He has pledged himself to curse them that curse them, his people, and to bless those that bless him. And so the psalmist, we need to know, was not just saying these venomous things for himself. He was simply allying himself with what God has already declared in his word. Long ago in the Old Testament, God said, All that come against my people, I will deal with. And it's like Elijah in the day when Israel had gone into idolatry and God had not brought judgment. He had not disciplined them. Remember, God had said, When you go into idolatry, I will withhold rain and I will bring famine in the land. And Elijah came before the Lord and said, Lord, your, your glory is being impugned. Your people do not regard you whatsoever. In fact, your king and queen of this nation are absolute idolaters. Remember Ahab and Jezebel? And your people are going on like there's no God in heaven. 
And it was as if God was saying, I was waiting for somebody to pray my word. And so Elijah, James tells us what? He prayed and it didn't rain for three years. And then he prayed and God sent rain in answer to Elijah. It was not because Elijah was so great, but God's word is so great. And God is so great. And he honors his word. And prayer is for us to pray what God has said he will do. And the psalmist here, when he's saying, come against Edom and Babylon and dash them and deal with them, as horrible as it sounds, this is what God said he would do to those who made merchandise of his people, who dealt with them as they were being dealt with. We see the atrocities of Babylon there in verses 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. The psalmist had been in Babylon and knew what the Babylonians were like. They were as cruel in war as the Assyrians. They did despicable things to their enemies. They would flay them alive. They would bury them in the hot sands up to their necks and leave them there to die. And the psalmist had seen these things routinely done, horrendous, atrocious things. They were cruel, and they would place uh, upon the stage... uh, the people and and deal with them in just horrible ways. At this point, the writer becomes a prophet. He was doubtless familiar with the whole range of Isaiah's prophecies. You see, he he was familiar with the prophet. And Isaiah prophesies it against Babylon in Isaiah 13 and 14, in chapters 46 through 48. If you read those chapters, the psalmist here is just praying what Isaiah said God would do to Babylon. Their children, Isaiah thirteen sixteen says, Their children also shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes, because the Babylonians had done this very thing to their captors. And so the prophet has said, This will come, a pa- uh, come to pass. Remember, the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And prophetic vision uh, gives this, the writer of the scripture this very idea. And so he begins to prophesy. The singer sees the future Babylonians invade, uh, the invasion of Jerusalem. And he knows that the Babylonians will be no kinder to God's people than they have been to others in other wars. And so he prays this. Happy shall he be. That that last verse, as horrible as it sounds, but it is a perplexing verse. But the psalmist seems to have in mind the justice of the Lord. God is just in whatever he does. The fires of the the spirit of the writer here have been stoked by his looking at the the sanctity of God's kingdom and the sanctity of Jerusalem. And we see him here asking the Lord to avenge his adversaries and his enemies. And this is the prayer. In actual fact, the ultimate fall of uh, of Babylon at the hands of the Medes and the Persians was relatively mild. So perhaps, after all, we might say that this prophecy was even more significant. Perhaps the focus is on the end times, past all this ancient history that we know about until the final manifestation of God on earth. The Babylonian world power uh, is led and inspired by the beast that will rise to power in the end time. And so the psalmist is praying the word of God here. But we come to the beautiful Psalm 138. And let's look at it together. The the psalmist addresses something that's common to all of us, trouble. One thing we know of is that all of us have trouble or have had trouble or are going to have trouble. 
And he says there in Psalm 138, verse 1, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. What an amazing statement. We can tell that David wrote this psalm because of the superscription there. It tells us a psalm of David. And that it was written at a time of tremendous trouble when he was surrounded there in verses 4 and 7. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high, yet he hath respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. Though I walk in the midst of trouble. He's writing from a, a background of trouble. Some say that it was because he mentions the temple in verse 2, that this was during the time of Absalom's rebellion. Remember, David's own son rebelled and tried, and for a time took the kingdom away from his father. But David loved Absalom, mourned for him, knew that he was going to be dealt with by the Lord for coming against the Lord's anointed. Later, when King Hezekiah was surrounded by his own enemies, and he was gathering the psalms that would be placed in the psalm. He was, and he was forced to flee from Jerusalem. He found great comfort in this psalm of David. You see, no matter what the immediate circumstances were, we all have trouble as well. And we take great comfort from the experiences written here, recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by God's people. We notice his rejoicing there in verses 1 and 2. And even though David is overwhelmed and surrounded by problems and heartaches, he declares, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Do you know that praise is always appropriate? No matter what the circumstance is. Most people opt, not to, they opt out on praising during times like these. And they choose instead to complain and to pine about their circumstances. We begin asking God to remove the pain, to remove the problem, to take away the heartache. But David chooses, at the beginning, instead to start with praise. Some decide to turn from the Lord when the bottom falls out and decide to give up on the Lord altogether. Stop going to his house. Stop singing the praises of God. Others, though, stoically hang on, but without joy or praise. And this ought not to be for God's children. A small minority like David follow his pattern of praise. He knew that God could do the unexpected at any time. And we know that as well, don't we? We know that our God is in control. He can change circumstances if he will. And we often hear that man's extremity is God's opportunity to show us great and mighty things which we know not. He goes on to declare, before the gods... Will I sing praise unto thee? Now here, the Hebrew word uh, in the context is Elohim. But it means not the false gods, but rulers. And what he's talking about here is the rulers of the earth. I will, before the rulers of earth, I will sing praise unto thee. Remember when David went up against the giant Goliath, a ruler among his people? See him unafraid of King Saul, another ruler, as he... Uh, ran in exile, although he respected Saul in his office. Only once was David ashamed of 
bearing or the testimony of the Lord. Do you remember one time he went to the enemies of the Lord, the Philistines, for refuge? And he went before their king, the king uh, of, of Gath, Ahimelech, and David pretended to be uh, crazy. He pretended to have lost his mind. He looked disheveled. He let his spittle run down on his beard, and they thought he was mad and took pity upon him, and he took refuge among and with the very enemies of God. Of course, David at this point in his experience was in a backslidden condition, and he shouldn't have even gone to the Philistines for refuge. In verse 2, he says, I will worship toward thy holy temple. Now, we know that the temple was not built in David's time. It was still, though, prevalent in David's heart and mind. He had one lifelong consuming desire, and that was to build the temple of the Lord. He had its plans. He had, was busy collecting the materials to actually construct the, the temple, even though the, the exact site had not yet been revealed to him by the Lord. He was collecting the building material for the temple, and it was first and foremost in his mind. It was as if it were already built in David's heart. At this time, the Ark of the Covenant was in a special tent in Zion that David had uh, erected just to, to keep it. But in his heart, the temple was built around it, and he could see it in his mind's eye. In fact, we know that anywhere a saint prays is holy ground, isn't it? Wherever that may be. And where God's people are, he's promised to be in the midst of them. Sometimes the, the actual architecture of an ornate building may even be so competing for someone's attention, they may find it hard to worship in a place that was designed to worship. But this is not true here. In David's heart, he's looking toward the temple, and he turned to the Lord in worship. In thinking about the future temple, he was preparing his heart for worship. He knew that God did not dwell in buildings made with the hands of man, and that when we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, we worship him in his heavenly temple. Our hearts and souls are transported to the very presence of the Lord. In fact, we're told to come before his presence, aren't we? And to come boldly to the throne of grace. Thinking of that future temple caused him to rejoice because he knew one day the Lord would have it built. He may not be the one, in fact, he would not be the one to build it, but still God would have his will and way. There in verse 2 we read, And praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Please mark that word loving kindness because it is the Old Testament word for the New Testament word that we know of is grace. So whenever you see the word loving kindness, and especially in the Psalms, it is the word grace. John 1 verse 17 tells us the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We notice that the law was given. Moses was its mediator. There when he received the tablets of stone, the mountains shook, the people were terrified. No wonder there had to be a mediator between God and man when the law was given. The law was given handed down from the Lord himself. But grace and truth came. The law was given. Grace came. We sing that, don't we? Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. He came down to us. It came robed in human flesh, as, in blood, as a little babe in a manger. See grace and truth as a young boy 
teaching and instructing and mesmerizing the, the, the theologians at the temple, amazing them with his doctrine and spiritual insight. Grace and truth spake like no other. It wrought miracles that only God could perform. And then, at last, grace and truth stretched out his arms, his hands, and was nailed to a cross for our sins and rose again. Jesus always perfectly balanced grace and truth. Sometimes we have truth without grace. The Bible tells us to speak the truth in love. Truth is what it is. It cannot be altered. God's truth we see here. He says, he's magnified thy word, his truth, above his name. It is what it is. It cannot be changed. Jesus always balanced the two. In grace, when he hung from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In truth, he told Nicodemus very plainly the truth, didn't he? You must be born again. You see, our Lord always balanced the two. In truth, he proclaimed what the Bible was all about there and what it meant in the Sermon on the Mount. And he lived it out every day perfectly. David said here, I will praise thy name for thy truth. Then we see that David praised the Lord for magnifying thy word above all thy name. That's a beautiful phrase, but, but what does it mean? That God would make great, would magnify his word above his name. Dr. John Phillips writes about that. God invariably revealed himself by his name. And in the Old Testament, God's word and God's truth were inextricably interwoven. Elohim was his name as creator and sustainer of the universe, the name of the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, the God of the galaxies, the maker of molecules, the one who fashioned the cherubim and the seraphim, Elohim. God has exalted his word above that name. Adonai. That was his name as sovereign Lord and supreme ruler. It is the name of him whose throne is above the stars. The one who created all things and all beings and all things must obey. He has exalted his word above that name. Jehovah. That was his name as the eternal one. The one who reveals himself the one who enters into covenant fellowship, relationship with us, the one who makes promises, whose word is his bond. He exalts his word above that name. He is Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides, the one who takes care of our wants, who provided himself to be the lamb for the burnt offering. He is Jehovah Shalom, the Lord of our peace, the Lord who heals, the Lord our righteousness, the Lord who is there, the Lord our banner, the Lord who sanctifies. These are his names that he's revealed, and he jealously guards that name. He does not allow human beings, and he warns all those who would take his name in vain. He has declared that he will hold no one guiltless who takes his name in in vain. Throughout the, the scriptures, he has exalted and extolled his own name. Yet God says that he exalts his word above that name. That is what God thinks about his word. How could we think any less? If God says, I have exalted my word above all my name, we should do the same, shouldn't we? You see, in reality, you cannot divorce God's word from his name. We wouldn't know about one without the other. They're interwoven. 
They're interchangeable. You cannot divide the two. How dare we disregard God's word? And that's what Satan wants us to do, doesn't he? Did he not come in the garden? Has God said? Did he really say that? Does he really mean it? How do you know? Questioning God's word. People lightly set God's word aside as if it was just history or poetry or some ancient religious writings. But, oh, no, it's far more than that. It is ancient. But it is the very word of God. And this is what he tells us. We see there in verse 3 that David magnifying the Lord for his great grace. In the day when I cried, thou answered me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. What a statement that is. And that's how God answered prayer. He gave him strength in his soul. Now, he did not immediately change David's circumstances. The Lord allowed Absalom to rebel, and for a time. He even gathered some of the leaders of Israel to side with him against his father. Oh, how it pained David that his son would do that, and his long-trusted advisors would side with David, side with Absalom against David. The Lord did not immediately stop that. He didn't take away the pressing problems. But do you know what he did do? He gave David strength to endure it. Now, in our flesh, we want no pain. We want no difficulty. And so the first thing we do is not praise God when a problem comes. The first, and for what he's going to do and how he is going to deliver us when he sees fit. We, Lord, remove this. Take this away. Change these circumstances. Eventually, Absalom does come to his end, doesn't he? And the Lord takes him out in judgment. But in the meantime, as he's having his own glory and righteousness by doing that, he sustains David and gives him grace. God allows things, even things beyond our control, to magnify his grace. We never would see God's grace if these kinds of things did not happen. Problems, difficulties, heartbreak. You remember Job? The Lord allowed Job to, to suffer great unspeakable things. He did not take away that pain immediately. Job had to go through that process of loss and misunderstanding by his own wife and his friends. And then we think more near to us, Paul. Remember, Paul gives his own testimony there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He speaks of being greatly blessed by the Lord and entrusted by the Lord with visions of what heaven would be like and about God's word, truths that the Old Testament prophets did not know. God told Paul the mystery of the church, which he unveiled and gave in the New Testament. And Paul said this about his great privilege. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Twice, he says, God knows how to deal with my pride. What is pride but being exalted above measure? Thinking too much of ourselves. Twice, Paul says, lest I think too highly of myself for having these revelations given to me, for being allowed to be a human instrument in recording the word of God. For this thing, this thorn, we're not told what the thorn was, and it's really irrelevant and in fact, because we do not know, we can put ourselves there, our difficulty, our circumstance. For this thing, I besought the Lord thrice 
Three times I begged him to remove this thorn, that it might depart from me. That's our first response, isn't it? Lord, take this difficulty away from me, this failed relationship, this problem, this, this healing that I need. Whatever it is, Lord, remove it, change it, put things back the way they should be or the way I want them to be. And Paul, no different from us, though the great apostle that he was, that this thing might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. The same thing he told the psalmist, I will sustain you. I will hold you up. I will give you revenues of strength that you don't even know about. My strength is made complete, made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, he can say, I can take pleasure in my infirmities. Not that I love to hurt or that I love for my heart to be broken, not in some uh, sadistic, cruel way, but he glorifies the Lord that when God does allow those things to come, in persecutions, necessities, or lack, lacking, needing different things, that when I am weak and all this done for Christ's sake, then I am made strong, not in my own flesh, but strong in the Lord. David said there in verse 3, In the day when I cried, thou answeredest me. Now, take note there, that does not mean that in that day he immediately solved the problem. But God heard him, and the answer was on his way as if it already had been. Do you know that the prayers you pray that God already knows how he's going to answer them? The answer is on its way. And David had learned by faith to say, I know this is going to be worked out for my good and for your glory. In the day, the very day that I prayed. Now, we know historically that Absalom did not give up his tirade the very moment that David prayed. But he, David knew that God would answer. And he did, didn't he? We know the whole story in the scripture. Often we see prophecy in the Psalms. This has not fully come to pass, and it will. One day, we see there in verse 4, all the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord. Now, did that happen in David's day? No. But we know that will happen one day. The scripture says that one day, all the rulers of the earth will bow before the king of kings and praise him. The earth will be restored to its former glory, and behind it all will be the grace and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. His word will rule the earth. His will will be done on earth even as it is done in heaven. Sin will be kept at bay. All wars and strife will cease. They will once again say of him, Never a man spake like this man. Like the queen of Sheba when she came to see Solomon in all his glory. What did she say when she went back? The half has never been told. They didn't half tell all the glories of Solomon in his kingdom. In verse 5 says, they will sing. Not only shall the kings of the earth come before Jesus and praise him. The Bible says, amazingly, they will sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. When these world leaders meet and come before King Jesus, uh, they, they, they will sing. Now today, when they meet, in Europe at some great uh, meeting or at the UN, the United Nations, or uh, in, in that building there in, in New York City, they don't sing, do they? Last night at the State of the Union address, they didn't begin with a song. When the Supreme Court meets and begins to decide some very, very earth-changing and life-changing decisions in the next session that they say they're going to vote on, they won't start with a song 
when, when our Congress meets, they don't start with a song. When the Birmingham City Council meets, they don't begin with a song. They argue now in these different meetings, but then they will sing. Think about how different things will be when King Jesus rules. All the kings of earth will come in from all the corners of the earth, and they'll say, let's sing praise unto our king. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound fitting? That'd straighten a lot of things out if we started with praise and started with sing. Now, they're not going to do that in Congress this next session, but you can do it in your heart. You can do it in your home. You can do it when the problems overwhelm you and you don't know which end is up. It's good to start with praise. And then in verses 6 through 7, we see his rule. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knoweth afar off. Isaiah saw him, didn't he? High and lifted up, his train filling the temple. Isaiah saw him in that way. Our Lord is above all, as the song says, higher than the highest, greater than the great. What a contrast. His height and our lowliness. When Isaiah saw his height, he cried, Oh, woe is me, for I am undone. And even though he was called out to be a prophet, entrusted by the Lord to come to his people with great truths and prophecies, to speak on the Lord's behalf, one glimpse of God in his glory put Isaiah on his face, saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. It's a foolish thing to be proud, isn't it? Our besetting sin is pride, and how silly that sin is. None of us have one thing we could point to and say, I'm responsible for that. Your abilities were given to you by the Lord. Your capabilities, your opportunities, all that you could point to, you have no reason to be proud over it. It's on loan to you from the Lord. And in one split second, everything that we could boast about and be prideful over could be taken from us just in a second. He knows our thoughts from afar. Oh, how silly it is to be proud. We ought to fall on our faces in worship and adoration. Look what he says there, though, in verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. God knew Absalom's thoughts from afar. He knew that those people who were coming to aid him against his father's rebellion and this amazing fact that David could not change his circumstances but he knew that God knew all and knew how to straighten it all out he could confidently rest and say the Lord will bring this to pass in fact he says there in the second part of verse 7 thy right hand shall save me the right hand of the Lord is symbolic in the scripture of the Lord's power that's what he when he extends his hand on our behalf the Lord, look what he says in verse 8. Oh, what a beautiful promise. And you can take this to heart as well. The Lord will perfect, complete to his satisfaction all that that concerns me. Sometimes it seems in this life that we have so many loose ends. We look back and say, Lord, I've not accomplished this. This is left undone in my life. This area in my, my spiritual growth is so lacking. And we can look at those things and be overwhelmed. And we're not to just sit idly by and say, well, whatever will be, will be. But this we can know, that God will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. That's a theme that we see repeated throughout the Psalms. Water may run out. The, the paycheck may run out. Your patience may run out. 
All kinds of resources that you can come up with will run out. But God's mercy is what we really need, isn't it? Endures forever. It reaches, it's as eternal as God is himself. He saves us by his mercy and grace. keeps us saved that way. And the only way we'll be saved 10,000 years from now is because of God's mercy towards sinners. Oh, the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. He makes a statement and then he asks God to do it. And that's what prayer is. It's as if he's saying, Lord, your word tells me that you're not going to stop until you perfect me. And your word tells me that your mercy will endure forever. I know that's what your word teaches. Aren't those facts? So prayer is telling the Lord, reciting to him his word. And then he says, would you do that, Lord? Forsake not the works of thine own hands. We are his people, aren't we? And he has made us and not we ourselves. We're the work of his hands. And we can rejoice with the psalmist that he will perfect all that is going on in our lives. And we can rest that with him tonight as we come to him in prayer.